I sit here today about to talk to a woman that I regard as an absolute treasure. The year is 2020, a year of change and profundity. It's also the 25th anniversary of the 1995 Conference on Women, which took place in Beijing. That was when the world made a promise, equal rights and opportunities for all women and girls everywhere. Among the 30,000 activists and representatives of 189 countries who were gathered there to debate what it would take to make a gender equal world was a 24 year old gender non-conforming lesbian activist south african bev Diti. the lesbian caucus was allocated a slot to address the plenary and she stepped forward to take on that responsibility the caucus's aim was to convince the un delegates to adopt resolutions recognizing sexual diversity. This was a historic moment. The speech is noted as being incredibly revolutionary, as it was the first time an openly Black lesbian person had been in this position. Her speech was about the importance of including lesbian rights in discussions about the empowerment and upliftment of women. It was also the first time that the United Nations faced a discussion on considering the realities of LGBT people in the protection of human rights. In this address, Ben, my guest on this podcast, argued that a focus on women's rights should include the struggles of all women, saying that if the World Conference on Women is to address the concerns of all women, it must similarly recognize that discrimination based on sexual orientation is a violation of basic human rights. In 2019, Bev was awarded an honorary doctorate from the Claremont Graduate University in California. And the doctorate was to acknowledge her dedication and hard work in the fight for LGBT equality. She's an activist, a filmmaker and speaker, and her latest work is what brings together this conversation. Her latest work is a documentary titled Lesbians Free Everyone, a Beijing Retrospect. And as a way of marking the events of the 13th of September, she put it together during the lockdown in South Africa. Um, it's my birthday today, so I went home to see Mama. Mama, her birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. I think this is even more beautiful that I get to speak to you when you're celebrating a beautiful milestone like this. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm like, I'm so, it's been such a beautiful day. I'm in a really good space. So I, I yes. have no complaints. So do you love birthdays? Uh, what kind, what's yes. your attitude or how do you feel about birthdays? Yes, I love, look, I, 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 I love attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would announce my birthday like weeks before, at least I'm better now. Yeah. I just, you know, hint. Um, but I would normally announce it and be like, hey guys, you know, it's my birthday next week, right? Prepare, um, prepare. So yeah. It's not even about the gift. It's not, it's just about like, hey, it's my day. Yeah. Yeah. I just love that because my sister always teases and she says that growing up, I loved birthdays to the point where I'd be singing so enthusiastically, even when it, even if, it, even if it wasn't my birthday, but I was that kid like, yay, with a big celebration. Even now, I, I love celebrating birthdays. Yeah, I do. I do. I really do. Wonderful. Uh, so, oh, so thank, thank you. Um, whew, yeah, I was a bit nervous. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But you know, mama says, drive, hunke. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Is this, you're talking about your famous mom? Well, you know, my, 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 my mom's just always said to me, you know, Rowena, we always knew where you were going too far, okay? Like, oh, oh, really? I don't, the parents know. Parents know. They know. They do. It's true. It's true. And what did you think before when she said that? Like, what did you think that meant? Look, she was a she was a superstar in her time. Yeah. So I just kind of thought, yeah, you you know, you obviously you wishing me to follow in your footsteps. That's what you mean. So I I always kind of thought, yeah, okay, you know, yeah, okay, yeah. Like that's how I took it. Yeah, okay. 
mm. you know. Um, but but she's kind of just always been there. It's like watching me going, mm-hmm, look at you. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. And then you you kind of did, um, you acted as a kid when you were younger. Um, yeah. asked you yeah. to play a boy um, mm-hmm. when, when you were young. You were a child star, if, if we can use the modern phrase. <laughs> You know, and I've, I've searched for who may have been, you know, we like first. Oh, we do. We like, yes. we like to know who is first. And there, there wasn't a child, black child on television before me. Wow. Are you serious? Um, yeah. And I mean, I've searched and searched and searched. And obviously being a filmmaker and having worked so closely with the SABC, I've been able to dig it deep into their archive. Mm. Um, and there hasn't been anyone before me. So do you remember the name of the character, the boy character that uh, you played? The show was called Katiba. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, it was the segment was called Katiba, but the, the show it's called, was called Haranyakaling. Um, it was one of those variety shows right in the beginning of television. So it was yeah. 1980. I, I, I wasn't even 10 years old then. Um, and TV was three years old, and it was one of the first shows of its kind. Um, it was presented by Vinolia Mashiko's dad. Oh, wow. Um, yes. And I think Papali Plondi made their debut on that show. Um, they introduced Brenda Fasi, who was a backing vocalist. That's where I met Mabr for the first time in Nelimaniata. Brapita um, Sepuma. <laughs> It yeah. was one of the first times that I worked with Prapita Sipuma. And I think, you know, he is not being given his props because, you know, we don't do that very well in our country. Yes. But he yes. was an interpreter of a lot of the dramas from the 80s for a very long time. But what that meant is that while we had all these white directors, most mm-hmm. of them male, is that Prapita would then interpret and give you direction but he was directing, but he never ever got the director credit until he was like, you know, until the 90s. Mm. But throughout the 80s, Brapita was our interpreter on sets wow. whenever Nungu wanted us to do X, Y, Z as part of our script, as part of whatever show we were doing. He mm. was interpreted. Um, and so that's where I also met Brapi. And like a lot of the superstars that like are older now in this country, like I think, you know, when I say I grew up in this industry, I mean yeah. it in kind of every way because it's okay. Um, yeah. even, even when, um, you know, Bon Tatehu came back from exile, Bo Mama Miriam, and they were all like, ah, and they all hung out with my mom for a little bit. They all looked at me like, oh, hey, you. <laughs> Like, oh, they, <laughs> they could see that quality. So you've actually seen us through all the different eras. Do you know yes. what I mean? Like you've 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 touched, you've tasted, you've been within through all the different eras. Yes, I, I've been the the pre-transition, the transition. I mean, pretty much. Look, I think that's one of the reasons I'm obsessed with doing, um, ultimately doing another PhD on TV and um, on 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 representation in TV mm-hmm. and film in South Africa because I can speak it from a very personal space. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, from a very personal and, and professional perspective, it's actually an interesting vantage point that not many people in this industry can boast. Nope, 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 nope. So, I mean, to do voiceovers. Azania, did you know, I don't know if you remember, do you remember Do Me, Do Me? I do. That's me. Oh, no. Do Me, Do Me, Wana Is that the one? Oh, no, yeah. no. I used to love that show. Mama is is Dumi's mom on the show. Mama yes. is that's her voice singing. Dumi, Dumi, Wanaka Kutan. So I like mom would take me everywhere with her. So all voiceovers that were done around that time. We did another one called Joe 90. We did yeah. so many that I don't remember their names. Except for Dumi, because Dumi was big. Yes, and what did so, it mean you know, to you to be like, able? Yeah, it was big. It actually was huge. Uh, yeah. I still, I can see it in my mind's eye. I can see the strings, the puppet, the stories. Exactly. Can still see it. 
<laughs> exactly. And again, you know, Dumi was a boy in the show. Mm. Mm. Yeah. The serendipity of it never escapes me. That's interesting. I'm making a note because I want to come back to this point uh, a little bit later on. Uh, it sounds like you and your mom were, yes, mother, daughter, but there was a friendship there. And yeah. it was the, the, the mothering in the way we think of uh, mothering more left to your grandmother because she, she helped raise you too. Yeah. Um, in fact, my, my mom was my bestie and our, my grand was our mother. Right. And I mean, I know that a lot of us kind of grew up like that, but because mom was also a superstar, she was, you know, when somebody is your friend, that means the responsibility is generally left to somebody else. Because yeah. <laughs> um, mom was a, mom was a star. We, we like, mom, I was proper mini me. You know, mm. when, when I would say my mini me, because yeah. I mean, she would dress me like her. Um, we dress up with like Khalilrata the Ulster. So she'd like, oh. you know, Chuck Taylors. She'd have a different colored Chuck and I'd have a different colored Chuck and we'd be in the middle of the inner city in Joburg, um, you know, walking about in our checked shirts and jeans. I was a proper mini me. But that's almost unheard of. It's unheard of when you think of women of her generation. Yeah. No, she was, she was a revolutionary. Really, she was. Because she also, she questioned the status quo in every sense of the word. She just kept saying, I will not be what society expects me or wants me to be. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, she like even places where she would take me because she was an artist, whenever she would take me to places like, like I, I am one of those people that have experienced street art and performance. You know, I, I, I remember seeing um, the penny whistlers in the street corners in Commissioner Street as a, as a kid with my mom, you know. Um, I remember there was, um, um, what, what was his name? He was a penny, penny, really famous penny whistler. Uh, yes, with the with the kids who now also um, yes, 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 and then there was Joe who was the tap dancer. Uh -huh. Tap tap. I think there was like a whole tap tap guy. I, I, like we saw all those people live. So while mom was grooming me in entertainment, I was being exposed to other types of entertainment that was going on around me, and a lot of it, a lot of it was a to cinema. Um, oh, yes. When it was in its heyday, um, Jabulani Amphitheater, where Soweto Theatre is now. Mm -hmm. um, I know Jabulani Amphitheater from backstage, from front stage. I performed at the age of 10 um, at, at, at Jabulani Amphitheater, um, mm -hmm. you know, where I met, what's his name? Kanakimang Tandeka, PJ Powers. With oh, yes. Uh -huh. guitar I touched backstage was Jabulani Amphitheater with like And she was famous. It was the days of the festival. Remember the festival? Yes. Uh, yes. Where you would have an incredible lineup all day long. Okay. Fun Valley. Wow. Some of my first singing gigs was in front of all those thousands of people. Yes. At Jabulani Amphitheater. So mom was really grooming me in, in performance and in entertainment. Um, at the time, and she was so, just, she was breaking boundaries. Yes, exactly. So for her to have been that revolutionary, it also suggests or tells us a lot about her own mother. So this line of matriarchs that you come mm. from, who are an absolute mm. force, you know, uh, what can you tell us about your grandmother? My grand wasn't very happy about all of that, eh? Okay. Because my, grand, my grandma grew up hard. My grandma grew up in the farms somewhere. Um, she, she actually says it's somewhere near the Val or around the mm -hmm. Val area um, mm -hmm. where they had huge farms. She says she grew up with her family, had everything from pigs to um, cows to... She had absolutely everything. She says it was... And they had a guest house, apparently. Mm -hmm. My skin oh, tone. Oh, wow. They, they had, had the land. Mm. They, had, they had land. They No, not just land. They had land. Mm. She speaks of it as being like you would walk it from one corner to the other for a whole day. Wow. That's They played so far away that whenever they had to come back home, you know, like it, they, it was horses to kind of find them and bring them home as kids. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that was the land where we grew up. And then um, they had a guest house that entertained visitors from all over the world. This is just at the turn of the century. And by, you know, the Land Act that came in um, at 20, yeah. uh, 1913, um, that that took the first land act. We were some of the first people affected because my grandma actually remembers being a child um, and being moved to some godforsaken place. She says it had lots of rocks and snakes and it was a tiny little hut. And, and that's, that's where the hardship started. That's where poverty began. Yes, um, you know, and, um, I, your story also resonates with mine in so many ways because my family also comes from that part of the country. I still have family that side and people always want to make it seem as if Gauteng did not have anybody living here. <laughs> you know? but, yeah, but like you, my roots also stretch within this province um, yes. and precisely in that Val, Val area. And also similarly with the dispossession of land, my grandfather had cows for days. My mother would tell us about drinking milk, for instance, fresh cow milk that had just yes. been milked from, from the cows practically daily. And then it was these uh, movements and uh, these removals that mm-hmm. landed us in Soweto and that yep. your family also ended up in Soweto. You are my from Orlando. Ended up, my grandma left work, I mean, left school at the age of 14 and became a domestic worker yeah. um, when her mom was got ill and her mom passed away when she was 14 years old. And so she had to take care of eight of her own brothers and sisters because she was the eldest. So she left the farms, she left the Val area and came to Johannesburg proper and lived from 14 years old and lived in Sophia town and mm. literally faced everything a young girl who was light skinned could face at that time. Mm. Everything, all of it. I mean, when, when my grandma, because I started writing um, in her last years, I started writing. I said, you're going to tell me everything. And I recorded some of it and some of it, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. She told me harrowing stories of some of the things that she went through. And then of course she marries a, a guy who is, was one of the most abusive men, but he was also a, um, a he played the concert, concertina. Yeah, um, yeah. What is it called uh, in English? It's the, it is, it is a Latina, right? Yeah. Um, and so he would take my my mom, who was at the time also six, seven years old, and could dance. Um, and he would take her to the inner city, and and they would perform um, mm. for money. And that's how he was a gangster that made his money doing performance. Um, and while people were watching the performance, the rest of his gang would like pickpocket. The audience. Yes. That's yes. the background that my grandma was, you know, would tell us. Um, but that's also where my mom got performance and music from because she grew up singing and performing with, with her dad. But her dad also beat up my gran and did, did mm-hmm. all kinds of things. I think that's why we ended up being so maternal, is mm-hmm. that the men in my family um, just unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. The didn't show up in the way they, yeah, they didn't show up in a way that no, I mean, did them No, broken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who, who exerted their little bit of pseudo power on everybody. Mm. Two things that you said that I wanted to unpack just a little bit. Uh, when you said your grandmother mm. was subjected to all the things that a light-skinned woman uh, would be at that time, Mm. Can you elaborate, uh, not not by way of uh, getting into details sure. of those specific for sure. experiences? No, no, for sure. Um, I, you know, listen, growing up in apartheid with a sister and aunts that were darker than me, colorism mm. is, is a thing, is a daily, daily bread. Um, and so, you know, whenever I hear words like, yellow bone. I find it's, it offensive. And it's deeply single, offensive. Deeply offensive. deeply offensive. Because even the people who are saying that and lauding the colorism and then elevating some of us to some position because of our light skin and proximity to whiteness, which is actually what it is, you're literally saying that everybody else that's darker than me is not worthy of your time mm. and energy. Um, mm. And so I, I get offended because not just because I identify as black, but I understand how colorism has been used against all of us to divide us um, and, and to, to perpetuate the, the, 
the power that is in control of us, you know. Um, mm-hmm. My grand, when you are my grand, um, and being light-skinned Tosa meant that you get a lot of male attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking this from experience. Mm-hmm. You get a whole lot of male attention, whether you want it or not. So there's a cocktail, seductive cocktail that somehow we attached, we've attached certain associations to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And so she, she spoke of, you know, it wasn't just the bus worked as a domestic worker in the kitchens. It's walking from train to work and work to train. It's living in the, the quarters, the maids' quarters, and having all the different gardeners who would come over and and be feel entitled mm-hmm. to a fourteen year old girl who they mm-hmm. all wanted a little piece of, um, and obviously very little. You can't. There's so only so so much you can fight. Um, so Mama was not a happy person. Yeah, Mama was not happy, and so you know, even even at a time when. My mom and I were living our famous lives and, and making money, uh, you know, and being famous because we were, you know, my mom obviously was very famous. And then I come along and I am the mini me. Um, mm-hmm. It was not, it was not happy. Um, yes. Because my, my grand continued to be a domestic worker. And then the industry being the industry that it is, when mom stopped performing and acting and there was no more money coming in the only breadwinner was my gran and she she was not happy mm. yes it's like yeah. this 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 light this limelight this this thing that you're doing draws attention and having attention mm-hmm. in her mind um mm-hmm. equals troubled equal trouble so, coming your way all the trauma but also just being broke being famous yes. and being broke has always been a thing in my family. Um, and that's why she's like, literally when, when, by the time I turned 13, 14, besides mm-hmm. the fact that I had become too light to play black on TV and I wasn't cute anymore. Cause you know, a kid is cute until a certain age. As yeah. a child. <laughs> um, yeah. But I was also too boy to be girl, but I was also in puberty and, and kind of, you know, growing in ways that started to show that I couldn't be doing these boy roles and the girl roles I just hated. Um, mm. When I, it's my grand who stopped, who said, no, you're missing school too much. You are focusing on the wrong things and look at your mom. Yeah. So my grand stopped, stopped me and made me focus on school. And, you know, there's a part of me that's very grateful for that. So, you know, when you were telling the story about playing the part of Dumi, uh, voicing the puppet uh, and the, the, the other character that you played, you were a boy in that role. So have you thought about the relationship with all of those boy roles and sexuality? You know, I, that sometimes I ask God, it's like, you knew what you were doing, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, um, I did a talk where, you know, I play the clip and I say, all this kid ever wanted was to be left alone to just do whatever they wanted. Um, mm. But this kid continuously found themselves being forced into gender and binary roles, being forced into you must be either this or that, you can't be both, you can't be neither. You must be a girl or you must be a boy and that comes with rules. And the rules are, you you know, when you're a boy, this is how you behave and when you're a girl, this is how you behave. I feel like the serendipity of it has put me in a position where I can see how gender is such a role play, how mm-hmm. it is an enforced role play, how you know, somebody actually called it a sexual and gender dictatorship that we live under. Right. That actually is so normalized that for for a very long time, people didn't know that there was another way to be because all of us who grew up different were forced eventually to conform or die. Mm. Mm. And so I found myself being completely unable to conform. And, and I kind of made it clear. I was also very lucky that as a kid, I was so affirmed 
I was loved, Azania. I was, I was loved and I was affirmed enough to be allowed to be anything I wanted to be. If I felt like a girl once in a while, I'd be okay with wearing the dress on Sunday to go to church, you know? Yeah. But generally, I was, I was left alone to climb the tree, to play karate with the boys in the street, you know, to, to do the Shaka Zulu um, or Bruce Lee. I, I, was, I was allowed to be me, yeah. which then made me aware of what it is to not be. Because mm -hmm. then, obviously, you get into puberty and then you realize that, wait, now I'm expected by even home, the people that have affirmed me are now looking at me and saying, it's time to outgrow this nonsense. Yeah. And I'm sorry, yeah. but, but I, there is nothing to outgrow. This and is who I am. So share the story of when it became clear, um, when you had a name for it, when you had uh, just a way of clarity, even in your own mind about, oh, this is what it is. Yeah, and, and, you know, it came via sexual orientation before it became gender identity, you know, yeah. because these are all new words, right? Um, gender identity and expression is new in mm. that, you know, we now know that somebody can be effeminate and still be a heterosexual human. Yes. You know, or, or be very masculine and still be heterosexual. That's a whole different thing. That's a gender expression. That's a gender identity that is al allowing oneself to be themselves. I know of non-binary people who are non-binary, but actually identify as a heterosexual in their orientation. But yeah. obviously then we didn't know any of this. All I knew is that not only am I not getting over the phase of being a tomboy, but I actually am not even interested in boys. And I think that kind of was the source of a, of a major depression from I think the time when I was about 11. Um, by the time I hit 13, um, and now my boobs are getting a little bigger and I'm getting hips. And yeah. the depression just got really deep because I'm being hit on by men and I'm hating every second of it. Because as far as I've always known, I am neither boy nor girl, but I'm leaning more towards being a boy because I'm a boy and I've always been one, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, I, I was, I've always also been quite counterculture. And that again, that again comes from my mom who said, you must listen yeah. to everything. So I, while everybody else was listening to the new music that was coming out then, you know, which was called Bubblegum at the time, um, you know, including Boma Brr um, and Boma mm. Kagela, I was listening a lot more to British pop. Oh, yes. The Pet Shop Boys, Boy Pet George, that era. I remember that. that. You probably that listened to Radio 5 as well. Radio 5 was my go-to. That was yeah. my radio station. While everybody else was listening to what was then Radio Metro. Mm. Um, I was on five. Um, and so I was watching pet shop boys who were quite effeminate. And I was looking at uh, The Cure. And I was like, wow, oh, yes. they're not like conventional in their masculinity. And then Boy George comes along with Culture Club and he's very clear. He says, I'm gay. Mm. That, that epiphany is not something I will easily forget because and it's my sister who, again, is younger by three and a half, four years, who said, wait, 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 because we talk about everything with my sis. And um, said, but wait, isn't that you? It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he's a man and he likes men. And you're a woman. It's like, I'm not a woman, not really. It's like, no, but Bev, you're a, you're a girl and you like girls. Yeah. That means you're gay. You hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm. <laughs> It hit me so hard. I was like, I was so excited. I was excited because now for the first time, I wasn't alone in the space. Mm -hmm. I understood that by just having that word. It just meant that I, I, there were others like me. And, and sometimes that's all you need to kind of save you because I was, I think I'd already attempted suicide once. I'd been in deep, deep depression because I couldn't figure out how I was going to live. I'm neither boy nor girl and I like girls. How is that going to work? So, so it was, it was life-saving to find the words to describe my sexual orientation. And then, of course, because I'm, you know, I've got leadership and I'm like boisterous and tomboyish, I then had to kind of 
choose again. I had to choose a binary. I had to be butch. So I was known as Butch. I was, you know, Bev George, because obviously, you know, we were going, uh, naming ourselves after our favorite icons. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I was this Butch person, um, and which I also kind of fought because I, I kind of didn't, I didn't understand that very much. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But now, now I know what it is. I've always been gender nonconforming. I've always I've always, 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 since I was a little baby, I've always been gender nonconforming. And as you said, the leadership thing was there. So obviously it made you more visible. You were involved at school in, uh, what was it, the SRC um, at the time. But oh, when it comes to your activism, what was it born out of? Was it an emotion, an incident, something you heard? Or was it just a gradual build-up, a gradual build-up uh, and just different coincidences, uh, introductions to new people, and you found yourself now in the space as an activist? I think I, I saw, I was exposed to so much. And um, because I was also encouraged to read, and yeah. my mom answered questions. My mom answered questions, honestly. You know, when we say, you know, to kids, no, you're too young to understand. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we need to gauge what is too young to understand what. But a lot of the time, my mom answered me honestly when I said, what is apartheid? You know, she didn't just say, oh, it's white people mistreating us. She, was, she, she broke it down a little bit, that it's a system that has this race being dominant over all of us. And this is why we live here, live like this. This is what's going on around us. But also remember, I was a child actor, which meant that I interacted a whole lot with other people of other races. And I saw how the white folks in, on the sets we were working, how they were treating the black people on the sets we were working on. Mm. Um, I, I mean, Hillbro was not yet very kind of, um, what's the word, integrated. Yeah. We were some of the first people to live at Fontana Hotel as black people. Mm. You know, this is 1979? Sure. Um, yes. And we had to live, had to live in, the, in the city because the production didn't want to be driving into the township to come and drop us off. And so we were booked the hotel and I lived at Fontana Inn for three months. And mm. so whole lot of the different interactions between men and women, between white and black. I, I was exposed to a whole lot. And because I was also a reader, I, was, I, I processed it and I asked. And a lot of the time I was answered that, oh, this is the way it is. Men are superior. White people are superior. You as a girl, you, you need to behave this way. And I would watch and see people literally change their behavior depending on who walked into a room. Yeah. I saw the performance and I remember just being fascinated, constantly fascinated by the performance. I really actually thought that I'd be a, a drama scriptwriter, drama director by now, you know, because <laughs> I, I always watched people perform the roles that they've been assigned. Hmm. And I think having seen all of that, made me want to do something when the opportunity came to see if there was a change that could be made. Um, I went to a Catholic school and in our Catholic school, I'd see how there was one school called Ipongo. My school was St. Matthew's um, and we were, school was next to Regina Mundi in Rockville. Um, And so I would watch Ipongo school kids come to terrorize my, my principal who was a nun and she was a white woman. Mm. and smack her around, you know, and demand that she let us go because schools are supposed to be closed because can pass one, pass all, free yes. and now and later. And she refused. For an entire year, she refused. She said, I don't care what you say. Some of you are going to need education for when you are free. Some oh, of that's you so profound. Gonna... And I, I remember that era in the 80s, my comrades, you know, you would be in <laughs> class and someone would just come and say, hey, Nina. You know, mm-hmm. you're busy sitting here in the yeah. classrooms, you know, uh, and as you say, they, they would just take over the school. And those are some of the scenes from when we were growing up. Exactly. And so, you know, while everybody else was saying that, she, you know, she should allow us to leave, the rest of us kind of understood that, you know, I actually yeah. do want this education. 
um, even if it's it's half baked and, and mediocre, which it wasn't because Catholic schools at the time was also. I mean, one would say that I grew up with a little bit of privilege, and and going to a Catholic school is is privilege because mm. there's just a different there was a different approach to education than what everybody else was kind of being subjected to at the time, which was... Yeah, and the discipline, the discipline, yeah, that was enforced in yeah, Catholic schools. Else. Together with the guilt, of course, that you learn. Who's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be your next best is like, okay. And the priest that you're supposed to, whose rings you're supposed to kiss and all of that, mm. you know? Mm. Um, so I, I was curious and I wanted, I, I, I knew that I... I had a way of articulating what was going on around me that, you know, in, in some of the SRCs I found myself in, I would talk, you know? Yeah. But I, it, it didn't last very long because I would find myself constantly getting into big fights because, you know, women, women's issues. And it was always in the agenda, they would always have women's issues at the bottom of the agenda and then A, O, B, any other business. And so the second last item, by the time anybody got to women's issues, like they would all sit there and go, why are we discussing women? And I would be the only one saying, because um, freedom is not just freedom for you guys. What does it mean? What does freedom mean for me who's a girl right now? You know, and then they'd like just laugh and then move on. And so I, I found myself leaving spaces because I knew that I was fighting against a tide that was just, no one was wanting to listen to that particular conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me aware that, you know, even post-freedom, even during democracy, we are not going to win this because none of these guys wanted to hear anything about anything that had to do with my role in society as a woman other than the one that they have already perceived, accepted, and are enforcing. And that seems to also have followed you into GLOW. Um, and your story and your friendship with Simon Nkoli, who was an apartheid uh, activist and also uh, um, an LGBTI uh, activist at the time, is well documented. You even created a film about it. Uh, but GLOW, the lesbian organization, um, the gay and lesbian organization of the Witwatersrand, Front, a gay rights organization, was instrumental, in fact, in giving um, the community in this country not only the first pride, but also a community, a place where you could say you belonged. So before we address that, that fallout, how, how important was that and what did it mean, you know, for you to be able to find a place, a community, a place where you could say you belong. And that need is intrinsic in all of us. Mm, mm. Um, and that came after finding the word gay yeah. for me at, at age of 13, because then I found that there was a community of other gays in the township, um, not far from my home. In fact, across the road was my best friend, Pule, and we were born on the same day. Pule passed away this year, by the way. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. So together today mm. um, and Pule is the one, yeah sorry um Pule is the one who who told his sister that he thinks he's also gay and his sister had friends in in, in her high school and they brought these people um these incredibly looking ethereal looking queens um, and Pule ran over to my place and said, come, you've got to meet these people. Mm. They're gay like us. And I just went, what? Because <laughs> Pule had just come out to me and said, I think I'm gay too. In fact, the way Pule said it does, it rhymes with day. It's like, huh? Me too. <laughs> gay. Like he couldn't even say the words. Eventually, yes. like, I'm too, damn it. Like, oh my God, you're kidding. So like, it didn't take long before there was these TD. TD was tall. TD had this Adam's apple and had this baritone. And TD was pretty too. And TD, TD also loved Boy George and Culture Club. So TD would wear these long flowing shirts 
in like beautiful, rich colors. And there was Tildi, really effeminate, like a, like a beautiful queen, you know? Yeah. Um, I'd never seen anything like that. And I remember just thinking, wow, you are gorgeous. Um, and Tildi just, you know, giggled. And, and that's what, that was my first community. Um, mm-hmm. they were, we were eventually called the Ted Dinners which is a whole story on its own. That's another film <laughs> that I'm developing because mm-hmm. it's a story that needs to be told. Um, and this was after there was on Kit, in Dallas. No, it wasn't Dallas. It was, um, what was Dynasty. That? Dynasty. Mm. Dynasty there was a gay character. It was one of the first times we saw a gay character on TV and his name was Ted Denau. Oh, and is so that where the name comes from? Yeah, we were called the Ted Denau's because we just identified with this first gay man that we saw. But we also had a dance group called Culture Club. Um, you, you know, so you can obviously imagine um, all the gays that we were fashioning ourselves after. Um, and it is this group of people who ended up at my 16th party. And it is this group of people that Ted Denaz just after my 16th birthday who said, wait, there's an activist called Simon Nkodi and he has a meeting. Mm. That's how Glow was formed when we went to that meeting with some of the members of the Ted Dinars and met Simon Nkodi for the first time. And he said, all right, are we doing this? And we said, oh, hell yeah. And so what that, what that ended up being for me was here I was trying so hard to be part of the anti-apartheid activism that was going on in my community and in my schools, but feeling completely left out because I could never raise issues of sexual orientation. And they were, of course, talking about how, you know, everything that is Western and European will be stamped out and our women will be back to being our women so that we can reclaim our manhood that was taken during apartheid. That was the talk. And so I realized that I didn't belong in any way over here. I could not bring up anything woman-related. And so, of course, I would never be able to bring up anything queer-related. And here I was at Vets University in September of 1989, meeting Simon Nkodi, who was himself an anti-apartheid activist, who was speaking of gender equality, who was speaking of racial equality, who was speaking of being recognized as sexual orientation, Oh my goodness, pretty much all of me was being represented in that space at that time and there was no looking back. All of me was embodied in that. You were 17. I was 17. That is just outstanding because I, when I think of myself at 17, I don't think my awareness of what was going on around me, and maybe I'm judging myself too harshly, you know, in retrospect, but you were a young 17. Yep. Which which I I think it it speaks of a boldness that we know many don't have, and especially with our past, how this kind of boldness was not every day, even though, yes, we we did come from young people that also brought about June 16. Mm. Mm. It's incredibly bold, Bev. Really, really bold. Well, I I think it's because I'd already processed so much. Yeah. I I really had. I, I, I was not allowed to take anything for granted in my life. Um, I... By the time I joined Glow, I'd already also attempted to cut my first album. Um, Mm. Because also remember, right throughout that entire time, even though my gran had already stopped me from doing a lot of the TV work, I still had guitars around me. I still made music. I still played music. And my mom was still connected in the industry. Um, But then, you know, I found myself not being able to accept some of the status quo that was being forced down my throat. And I mean that literally and figuratively, Azania. Um, now we know, now we have the language, like you were saying, we, we know that it's intersectionality, that our struggles are, yeah, it's intersectionality, but we didn't know at the time. And clearly when you were expressing these ideas, people must have, reacted to you as we saw with the SRC uh, example yep. in a peculiar yep. way 
absolutely mad. But it's just that, you know, that 10 year old, that nine year old about to turn 10, just wanted to be left alone to perform, to make music, to act, to direct, to tell stories, to just be themselves. That's what mm-hmm. that 10-year-old wanted. Mm-hmm. And I found myself every step of the way being hindered by both race, the fact that I was living in a township, I could not have access to any of the things that I wanted, um, I, by my gender, the fact that there are so many things I couldn't do unless I did something else. Like the example I was making with trying to do my first album is that the guy who was the producer um, who came over, my mom left me with him in the lounge yeah. to just talk so that I could play some of my songs to him and so that he could see if, you know, there's something there. Mm. And, and typical, mm. his hand started wandering to my thigh. And he was like, yeah, you, you should ask your mom. This is what we do. This is what happens in this industry. You're not going to get far unless you are, you are chilled. You need to relax. You must be chilled. As he got closer and closer. Yeah. You know? My heart sank. Just as you said, my mom left me in the lounge with him. You know, my heart sank almost anticipating exactly what, what you say now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just me being me have always fought them. And I say them because you and I know it's never one uncle or two. Mm. We're Mm. constantly hitting hands, trying to get people away from our bodies. Mm. From when we are tiny to when we are grown up, we are constantly swatting them away from us. Um, And unfortunately, my perception of masculinity is that, is is that. It is entitled to, to me in every way, whether I want it to be or not. And so I've always just been aware of my position and I've always just been very clear that I will not allow it. And so I find myself constantly fighting, sometimes to just be me. That's really all I've ever wanted. Where does your healing come from? Where has your healing come from? Because with memories like that, with the work uh, and the other experiences that followed that one over the years, you have to go somewhere for that healing. And yeah. have, mm. I've been, I've, I've, I've been blessed that I've also been surrounded. Like I said, I've been loved. I've been affirmed. Um, yeah. And once in a while, I am able to tap into that love. Uh, my gran will always be the love of my life. Half the time she didn't understand me. <laughs> um, because like I said, she was quite conservative. There was a way to be and there was a way you shouldn't be. Um, she fought. She was a pillar of the community. She was a leader herself. Um, and yet, you know, she'd be very clear. You must always respect men. You do not fight them back no matter what they do. And those are things I'd say, uh-uh, ma. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, but I was I, my, I was loved. I was I was affirmed in my home when she stood up for me when people were trying to come and attack my home, and when people said they're going to fix me so that I can be straight. And she stood up. She said, "You're going to go through me," and the whole community had to back off. Mm. And when that happened, you know, things shifted. I I was I I was loved. Um, I, I survived four Jack Roll attempts. Mm-hmm. I, you remember Jack Roll? As I, I was nearly Jack Rolled as well. I, it's one of my most traumatic memories. I always shudder to think what would have happened had a neighbor not come out of her yard to interrupt mm-hmm. their attempts to drag me into that car. Mm-hmm. I shudder to think yeah. about the trauma and the story that would have followed that. I'm always... Yeah grateful I always say a prayer to to say thank you but it doesn't spare it doesn't spare the pain of knowing that countless other women did not have the same conclusion the thousands the thousands of women and when when we talk about it now people look at us like no men you know because you know the 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 gaslighting is now to not believe us it's not to believe that this could have happened in the scale that it happened. I had four Jack Roll attempts. By the third and the last one, um, it was Tebzangwa Namrembule. 
mm-hmm. who was told that there is somebody who is who says she's a lesbian up there and she mm-hmm. said fuck that i'm going to teach her a lesson um and the entire neighborhood came out to stop him i i was saved on the three occasions i was saved by my community where they all literally stepped out and you know those 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 are yeah those are things that you don't expect to happen but when they do you, where do you even begin to say thank you you know yeah i i, yeah. I once in a while i do shout out to my my community and i say wabutikelebo because i don't know where i'd be had it not been for those brothers who I, and and i hear sometimes somebody says which yeah no you know we were sitting at the shabin down the road when some guys were saying yeah but these these faggots these ditabani sorry for my language these mm-hmm. and and the, my neighbors would again till this day and age would say what's your problem mm. how do these people bother you exactly and the work of you know? changing minds and changing attitudes is really painstaking work it's hard work and it's almost as if uh the secret we don't know the key to it yet because in some uh sometimes it's a hit sometimes it's a miss sometimes you get a, a surprise in places that you least expect it's really difficult work to transform hearts and minds exactly exactly but you know just to answer you um quickly to finish that answer healing yeah. has also come my belief my my spirituality um I'm, a, i'm 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 deeply spiritual um and i don't mean religious because i think religion is a mess um mm. i i believe in god i believe in the lord jesus christ in every single way i believe that this guy if we really had to listen to what he had to say and not what we are told he said Yeah. This guy has never said anything about me. In fact, this guy loves really honestly loved and respected women. You never heard him or saw him do anything untowards, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there was Mary Magda. She's being erased. Yeah. You know, his companion is completely being erased um because obviously there's a status quo that needs to con- continuously be perpetuated. So mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of the life that we're living right now uh my spirituality just knowing that i'm not wrong to exist that i'm placed here i'm divinely placed here you know that that has really also been my salvation to to know that i am loved um here on earth and in all the other dimensions um has has been really my rock i i am confident and i'm very clear with myself with that Um, and I'm sure it's something you like you wish you could give to other people who are yet to make that realization because yes. you must interact with lots of young people who are at the early stages of their own personal struggle. Yes. No consistently. I I and this is I'm in 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 a lot of the motivational talks that I do. This is one one of the things is that if you are not able to see humanity in yourself, you are not able to treat others with humanity. Mm. And so you need to to first see yourself. You need to see yourself as the, as the the love, the human, the beauty that you are and then you can extend that outwards. Our self harm right now the way that we 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 from substance abuse to you know how we don't value ourselves as people is contributing to where the world is right now mm. Mm. you know because we've been made to believe that we should not exist and yet here we are so who's making the mistake here not god yeah yeah let's talk about pride briefly um because as part of glow you guys organized the very first pride march back in 1990 um you which was a historic moment um you you were just full of these hi- historic moments your life is littered with them <laughs> uh, and it it made headlines it captivated the imaginations of south africans it was a resounding success but um it didn't evolve in the way that 
those early organizers, those early activists and participants would have hoped. In fact, in um, you wrote last year, I think, referring, talking about October, the month of October, that this is the time of year that you mourn the loss of the dream that launched the first Pride in 1990. So what does Pride mean to you, considering just how loaded... Um, Pride is in, in, in your in, in as far as your involvement is concerned. Well, pride pride is community. Pride for me means means our our love for ourselves and for each other. Mm. That's that's where it is now. I think um, when I realize that I am unlikely to fight the status quo that exists. And I'm unlikely to fight it because really, honestly, I don't have a desire to fight it. Um, capitalism with its compadre racism is a beast. And it is a beast that, you know, you, you fight alone, you drown. Um, and so I'm not, I'm, I'm interested in building. I'm not even interested in the fight. Um, mm. And I realized that my strength really is in building. I, I, I've always been a community-centered person who has always been, you know, I think I have been successful to a large degree in, in how I'm just able to just connect with people. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my strength is. And I really think that's where pride is. I think this year um, we premiered my latest film at Soweto Theatre. Yes, and yes. called it 30 years of celebrating pride and by having a family meeting. And, you know, we spent the day in these, you know, plenaries, workshops, and just having just people come in and out of the theater to participate in whatever talk that they wanted to participate in. And that was for me part of community because it also brought together about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the organizations that um, exist the LGBTIQA organizations that exist in the space and, and it was just really and we all just thought okay so this is something that we can also do annually that is about community that is yeah. about our, our, our love it's about injecting back our sense of self our sense of pride our sense of, of feeling free to be in a space where we are all together sharing space and learning and, and reaching out to one another um, that's where I am. That's that's where I am. And yeah. um, I'm happier for it. I'm not as angry as I've been all these years. Mm. So excluded and marginalized from a space that I was part of creating. Uh, we'll talk about the film. I'm really eager to hear uh, the process. It's such it's a very special project. But speaking of pride, what are some of the... Uh, lessons that you're hoping young people, young queer people, gender non-conforming young people will take from the actions of not only GLOW, but um, the Lesbian Caucus at the Beijing conference? You know, I think we, we, we really need to go back to some kind of politicization. Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, if you're going to jump onto something, like at least have some kind of a, a basic framework for what you're doing and why you're there, you know? I may not have had the words like intersectionality. I may not have had the words like some of the ones we use today that is about gender identity and expression, but I knew that we were fighting something much bigger even within the LGBTIQA community at the time, right? I knew that racism and sexism and capitalism was part of our struggle that it wasn't just a racial one, there was class too. We, we, you, when you understand these things, it's not easy to be swayed into, you know, betraying the cause or, you know, mm. one way or, or, or detracting from where we're supposed to be going. Um, there's so many lessons to be learned. I think not just for young people here, but for the world. South Africa is a lesson 
just in terms of how we were so happy and so euphoric in our newfound freedom that we did not articulate very clearly what that freedom would look like. So we didn't have an, a goal further than we have freedom. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing that happened with us queers as well, is that, you know, by the time the Constitution was finalized in 1996 and we are part of it and we are inside this amazing Constitution and we are the first in the world, you know, there wasn't further thinking about, so how are we going to implement all these laws? Mm-hmm. What's supposed to happen next? Is anybody teaching people that we have a constitution that protects us? What What is happening and what is not happening? We didn't think further, um, which is unfortunate because this is kind of what led us to where we are now. When your white gay men said, oh, there's nothing to fight for anymore. We are free. Thank you for listening. Azanian Life brings you Interiority, a podcast which explores the inner aliveness of a people, hosted by Azania Musaka. Technical and music production by Mpontangeni from OCB.